I think America needs a royal family. I think I've floated that theory before, right? We should poll people. You gov, please get on this. If America were to have a king and a queen, <laughs> you gov would ask who that. Who would Americans want it to be? Don't they have like a ranking of like the most popular Americans? Most popular people in America. This is so boring. I don't want these people to be our royal family. No, this is pretty the, good. Who's the, the king and queen would be Morgan most... Freeman and Betty White. Like, first no, of no, all, no, no, they not have to be possible. Second of all, that's, that's so boring. Like, no, no. They have to, they can't be popular. Like, that's the thing. People have to like like having them in place for entertainment value, but they cannot all be popular. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. The past Supreme Court term featured the sharpest partisan divide in decades. Only 29% of the court's decisions were unanimous, and 21% were split along liberal conservative lines. And we probably don't need data to suggest that when it comes to some of the most high-profile, politically charged issues, the court has taken a turn to the right. The justices sided with limiting gun restrictions, limiting environmental regulations, limiting the Establishment Clause when it comes to the separation of church and state, and of course, overturning one of the best-known Supreme Court precedents, Roe v. Wade. The agenda for the court's next term includes another slate of politically charged issues like affirmative action, the Voting Rights Act, the independent state legislature doctrine, and a web designer who has refused to create websites for same-sex weddings. The rightward pivot of the court and the Democratic Party's consternation over what it means for the party's priorities is likely to continue for years. So that is what today's whole podcast is going to be about. We'll kick things off with a good or bad use of polling on public confidence in the court, then dig into the data on this past term and look ahead to next, and we'll wrap with a discussion on what Democrats could actually do if they wanted to change the dynamic at play. Here with me to do that is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Hey, y'all. Also here with us is legal reporter Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hey, Amelia. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. All right, so we are going to dive right in because we have a lot to cover today, and we're going to kick things off with our good or bad use of polling. A recent Gallup poll measuring Americans' confidence in the Supreme Court got some attention after it clocked the lowest number in the 50-year history of Gallup asking Americans about their confidence in a variety of institutions. Only 25% of Americans said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court in June of 2022. That's down from 36% in 2021. In response to these low confidence numbers, various commentators have argued that the court is putting its legitimacy in danger by straying too far from national public opinion. As one example, Jennifer Rubin, writing for the Washington Post, cites various polls about dissatisfaction with the court in an article titled, The Right-Wing Justices Think They Are Unaccountable, Period, Wrong, Period. Okay, so... Is this idea that public opinion, including these low confidence numbers from Gallup, constrains the court a good or bad use of polling? Amelia, as our resident Supreme Court expert, would you like to kick us off here? Sure. I mean, I think it's a fine use of polling. I would not take it to the conclusion that that column 
did because the Supreme Court is obviously not feeling constrained because they did what they did this term and a lot of that was unpopular. But what I do think those polls are telling us, which is helpful information, which is that people are paying more attention to what the court is doing and the things that the court is doing that are most high profile are unpopular. And so, you know, I think that is something that certainly could have consequences for the court in the long term, but I don't know if it's necessarily going to, you know, they're not going to look at that poll and say, oh, goodness, you know, our the co- country's confidence in the court is falling. We have to change our ways. They explicitly, the five conservatives explicitly have said that they don't feel like they have to do that. I want to dig into what you mean by long-term consequences for the court. But first, Sarah and Nathaniel, let's get you on the record. Is this a good or bad use of polling? I'm going to say bad. So Amelia's right that there is a long history of looking at public opinion polls, arguing that the court, generally speaking, has ruled within the mainstream. But my counterpoint to that is the polling industry was not what it was during the Warren Court in the 1950s and the 1960s. And I am sure if you had rigorous public opinion polling then, there would have been dissatisfaction on some of the rulings that the Warren Court made based on what your political beliefs were, similar to, I think, what we're seeing with this current court. And there was this piece, too, that um, Adam Liptick had at the Times that was looking at a, something that Amelia's looked at it quite in depth at the site, but, you know, how is the court bound by public opinion? And one of the more interesting points in that article, I thought, was that if it seemed in recent decades that the justices were more and less in sync with the opinion of the public, that may simply have been because the swing justice, by happenstance, most mostly reflected public sentiment. So when you look at Kennedy, yes, he was somebody who was more in line with kind of like the moderate voter than somebody like Kavanaugh. And I think there is good evidence that demonstrates that the court is now ruling more in line with the average Republican voter once than more of like this average median voter. But I do think maybe the conventional wisdom of the court being bound by public opinion is overstated. Okay, there's more to dig into there as well. But Nathaniel, let's get you on the record. Yeah, I, I I think that's right, Sarah. I would still characterize this closer to Amelia as like a fine use of polling, but it's kind of a very broad use of polling, and you can use it in in a bad way or in a good way, um, as Amelia kind of described. But yeah, Sarah, the same part of of that article jumped out at me as well. You know, I think that the, the people who argue that the Supreme Court pays close attention to public opinion and 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 that that dictates their decisions, you know, to be sure, I think that is a you know kind of an extreme form of the argument um, that is being proposed in this good use of polling, bad use of polling. But I think that's clearly not true. You know, you you have in American society a bunch of people on the left, a bunch of people on the right, and you have some people in the middle, the, the median voter. And as Sarah was describing for a long time in the Supreme Court, you also had uh, some people on the left, some people on the right, and then you had one or two, you know, swing justices in the middle, like someone like Anthony Kennedy. And and in that regard, the median justice was similar to the median voter, and it produced similar things with public opinion. I think in uh, as recently as 2020, um, Amelia wrote up a series of polls um, conducted that basically said, do you agree with this decision that, that the court did? Do you agree with this one, this one, this one? And they were very well in line with public opinion. But again, at that time, John Roberts was the, was the median justice. And I think there is 
a lot of evidence that John Roberts maybe cares about public opinion insofar as he cares a lot about the the legitimacy of the court. But now we have a different situation where Brett Kavanaugh is probably the median justice. He is a solid conservative. You have a 6-3 conservative majority. And so, you know, it's not rocket science. The, the median justice no longer looks like the median voter. So it's not going to reflect public opinion as much. But um, we can talk more about it. But, uh, you know, Amelia's other points about the, the value of, you know, the Supreme Court having a low approval rating and, and people not viewing the court as as legitimate, those are important numbers um, for other reasons. Okay, but that's what I want to dig into. Like, why? When we say, oh, there could be long-term consequences for the court of having low confidence ratings, or you bring up the concept of Supreme Court legitimacy, why? What are, what are the long-term consequences? I mean, the Supreme Court was designed to not be accountable to the people. So why would we use public opinion data for arguing that its legitimacy is at risk when the entire institution is meant to not be accountable to the people. So I don't think it's that the institution is not meant to be accountable to the people fully because the justices are appointed through political bodies and the political bodies represent the people. So they're supposed to be insulated from public opinion once they're on the bench, but they're still products of the political process. They are supposed to be a counter-majoritarian institution and they're supposed to be able to produce rulings that sort of go against the majority, protect minorities, et cetera. But, you know, the political branches do have power over the Supreme Court. You know, the president could just ignore or governors could just ignore what the Supreme Court says. They don't have the power to actually enforce their rulings. Um, And Congress could reform the court in various ways. So I think the way the political scientists have looked at this in the past, and I think this is sort of helpful for thinking about the moment we're in, is that they've argued that in the past, the Supreme Court has been constrained by public opinion basically in two ways. The first is that when they start to get outside public opinion, they will get signals from Congress in the form of proposals for court reform that they are going too far and they will moderate. Um, And there have been these long studies looking at the pattern between public opinion and the court's behavior and these what are called court curbing bills, um, you know, going back many years and in the 20th century, this seemed to be the case. The other thing is just that the, the court has sort of seemed to follow public opinion generally. And so the theory there, it's hard to know if like the court is shaping public opinion, is the court following public opinion? Um, But the theory is basically, it's not like, I don't think anyone thinks that the Supreme Court justices are looking at polls and trying to figure out how they rule. But I think there is a sense that like the justices sort of try to keep a pulse on how the country is feeling generally. And they try not to rule in ways that are really disruptive. Um, That was the big concern for the justices who voted not to overturn Roe versus Wade back in 1992. There were three Republican appointees who wrote an opinion together, they they basically said in so many words that because there was so much political pressure to overturn Roe, actually doing it would look politically motivated and it would threaten Americans' confidence in the Supreme Court. And I think that's what we've seen from John Roberts, too, the sort of sense that moving too fast on controversial issues is not good for people's trust in the court 
because it's sort of removed from them one step. And ironically, that was an argument against Roe versus Wade. Um, the idea that, you know, maybe the states should have kind of moved forward and, and they should have decided more about abortion before the Supreme Court jumped in. Um, but I think right now we're in a moment where the political process has created a Supreme Court that is very extreme and they don't really have an incentive to moderate because the mechanisms for holding the Supreme Court accountable are just not that, they're not that easy to use in our system right now. And the justices know that. So that's why I say long-term consequences, because I think all of that could change, but it's not going to change in the short term or, or even, I think, the medium term. When you say that, for example, you know, lawmakers could just not follow the court's rulings. Is there an appetite for that, either amongst the public or amongst, I mean, obviously you're describing a constitutional crisis, a very severe reaction to one of our branches of government. Like, does anyone want that? Because in polling, even after the Dobbs decision, you see that a majority of Americans don't even want to expand the court post Dobbs. So, is there any kind of public support for just straight up causing a constitutional crisis by not following the court's rulings? I mean, to be sure, some states, the attorney generals in place have said that, you know, what this is less in relation to the Supreme. Well, it's in re, it's related to what the Supreme Court did, but it's specific to the laws in that state. But they say, hey, I won't enforce X, Y, Z penalties associated with either obtaining or performing an abortion. So I do think there is an element of politics at play mm. here, where people will say, I don't agree with that. I'm not going to enforce that. Um, I don't know if that's unique to this moment, though. I think that's been true throughout history, that people are going to say, I'm going to do X, Y, Z and in retaliation to the court. I think what's more troubling right now is that the crisis in terms of trust in the court is not unique to the court. It's true of all of our institutions. Amelia was writing about that last week for the site. And I think that's the more damning component of where we are right now as a country. It's not a legitimacy crisis in the court, I would argue, as much as a legitimacy crisis in our institutions and our government of America. And that, I think, is where the real devastating consequences lay. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to come off as alarmist, but I think that a situation, you know, countries where support for institutions is low are also countries where you see heightened unrest. And, you know, we've already obviously experienced political violence in, in, on January 6th, for example. And, you know, there there's also, you know, there have been these concerns about protests kind of up in the face of Supreme Court justices, the, um, the attempted assassination or um, kind of person who was threatening uh, Brett Kavanaugh's life. You know, these are, I think, reasons for concern that are not unrelated to these um, leg low legitimacy numbers. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's new for the Supreme Court to come out with a big ruling and then have it basically be undermined by the political bodies. I think arguably that's what happened with desegregation, where, you know, the court ruled that schools had to be desegregated and South really did not want to do that. And a lot of places said they weren't going to. And then the court tried over a series of years to, in follow-up cases, to make sure that it was happening. And basically it didn't. And so I think we could see something like that where, you know, there were some governors who were straight up saying, you know, I don't want to follow the Supreme Court, but it was also just kind of years of like 
communities doing their own thing, the court just not being able to actually put this mandate into place. And so, you know, that could be akin to what Sarah was talking about, where we have like prosecutors um, in big cities and states that look like they're going to ban abortion, saying they're not going to charge people with abortion-related crimes and that kind of thing. So I don't think this is new for the Supreme Court. Um, But what I do wonder is if it changes the politics of the Supreme Court even more. We can talk more about this, but for a long time, and this is really how the Supreme Court got to be the way it is, the voters who cared about Supreme Court appointments were Republicans. Um, And there has been evidence in the past few years that um, Supreme Court appointments have been increasingly important to Democrats. But I'm wondering if the Supreme Court becomes a motivating issue for Democrats um, in the same way that it has been for Republicans, because you know, uh, like there's court reform and then there's just like you win elections and then you get to appoint more Supreme Court justices. And, you know, I wonder if that's something that voters are going to be caring about more. And that's why I think the Gallup polling is not a bad use of polling, because I do think to the extent that people are paying attention to the court and Democrats in particular are upset about what the court is doing, that could change the politics around the issue. And again, in the long term, that could have ramifications. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned the Gallup polling again, because I do have a question here about how good of a use of polling this is. Because to me, reading through all of the reporting on trusts and institutions, it seems like the survey is in some ways inclined to elicit low confidence numbers. So they don't ask, like, do you have confidence or do you not have confidence? They ask whether people have a great deal, quite a lot, some or very little confidence in the court and all the other institutions that they ask about. And the people who said they have some confidence in the Supreme Court is 43% of Americans. And of course, there's an additional 25% who say they have a lot or a great deal of confidence in the court. So it's not like 75% of Americans don't have confidence in the court, it's more like 68% of Americans have some or a great deal of confidence in the court. And like, I'm not saying that confidence in institutions hasn't been falling. You know, we can see that over the 50 years that Gallup has been doing this. But it's not, I think that the way that this number, the 25% number got reported was a little exaggerated because it didn't do a great job of explaining the different categories in the poll. That's interesting, Galen, because I would think it'd be the opposite. Because I agree that the 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 you know the construction isn't great. You want kind of some to be the kind of the median response. So you would want like two positive responses ahead of it and two negative responses after it. But the fact that some was kind of shunted down, like it gave people two options to say that they were like. Also, what's the difference between a great deal and quite a lot? Right. I mean, I think that's fair, but it gave, but the point is it, it kind of gave people those two options and people would be like, oh, okay. So like, I'm like, you know, in the second bucket here, but that still ends up being a positive bucket. And maybe if you had had a, like a four point response scale or a five point response scale, you would have seen, or it is a four point, but like a more balanced four point response scale, you would, I would imagine see even worse numbers. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's kind of more about the trend And there has been other research that's been showing that Democrats in particular 
are sort of tuning into how conservative the court is, and they're getting more supportive of court reform measures. That study that um, I can't remember if it was Sarah or Nathaniel was referencing earlier, it's a really great study by um, Stephen Jesse, Neil Molotra, and Maya Sen. Um, and in addition to their finding about the Supreme Court suddenly, after Amy Coney Barrett joining the court, looking a lot more like a Republican voter than a median voter on public opinion, they also found that Democrats just weren't super aware of how conservative the court was. And I think that has changed this year Mm -hmm. for many Democrats. Um, So, you know, I I don't think... Like, this trend isn't noteworthy because it's happening with everyone. Republicans are not unhappy with the court. But to the extent that we are seeing independents and Democrats paying more attention, which I think we can see in the data, and that they're unhappy, that's the relevant finding to me. Yeah, I mean, I think we can quibble with how it's been asked. But as Amelia is saying, you know, this question does go back to 1973. On average, Americans, you know, are likely 40, 43% to say either a great deal or quite a lot. 25% is obviously a lot less than that. It is a historic low. Like, I don't think we should lose sight of that fact in this. And it might be driven primarily by Democrats, but there are independents involved in this as well. And you know, similar to Biden's approval rating, wherever the independents go, it often tells the story. And I think right now there is a low trust in the Supreme Court. Although, Sarah, as you mentioned, there's a downward trend line for all basically American institutions in this polling. So if you compare that 25% for the Supreme Court to some of the other things they ask about, you know, 32% have a great deal or a lot of confidence in public schools, 33% in banks, 28% in organized labor, only 21% in newspapers, and only 12% in Congress. So like, the Supreme Court isn't really an outlier in terms of how low confidence is in different sort of very large and important institutions in America. Why is there specific, I mean, I think that people who pay a lot of attention to this do are concerned about the legitimacy of all kinds of institutions. But like, People aren't talking about sort of like blowing up the structures of Congress. What do you mean? Abolish the filibuster, Galen. I know. Um, But I hear you. And Congress actually. But Americans don't want that. You know? But to your, yes, but Americans also Americans don't want like packing the Supreme <laughs> Court either. I mean, so Gallup did another poll that looked at other institutions. It was conducted before um, Roe was overturned. But in that poll, the presidency actually had less trust, two, two points less than the Supreme Court, which had 25% in that poll as well. So, I mean, I think to your point, this is something we're seeing across the board. It's just, I think, when you look at those factors all taken together, that's what's kind of troubling more so for our country versus, I think, zooming into any one institution. Right. But I guess when we see this kind of polling being used, it's almost like because the Supreme Court isn't directly accountable to public opinion, people more say like, okay, well, the Supreme Court should be worried because they can get way out of line with public opinion and then lose legitimacy. But like, I guess I'm curious what that actually looks like. If there's a lack of trust across the board and there's also a lack of trust in the Supreme Court, is the response to the Supreme Court going to be any different to the response to organized labor, Congress, newspapers, or public schools? Well, I think part of this 
is guided by how you see the Supreme Court and whether you see it fundamentally as a political institution. I mean, I think the data that we got um, from this past term that you referenced at the top shows pretty clearly that there is a really big partisan divide on the Supreme Court, and that is new. But there are a lot of people who are really invested in the idea of the Supreme Court staying above politics. And, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe people will see the Supreme Court as just another body that's political and it'll become a voting issue for both Republicans and Democrats. And that'll just be how things go. But I think it's a change in how Mm. the Supreme Court has functioned and we don't know what's going to happen. Whereas, you know, people losing confidence in Congress or the presidency, you know, that's sort of like more those are political bodies People are always mad at them. Um, The Supreme Court has sort of put a lot of Mm. um, emphasis on staying out of that mess. And now it's kind of like they're being dragged in. And what is that going to mean for them? I mean, like maybe nothing, but maybe something. And that's the question. All right. Well, we're going to try to answer that question later on in this podcast. For now, let's move on and talk about the court's past and future terms. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The most recent Supreme Court term included a number of landmark decisions that Americans and lawmakers are still reacting to. As I mentioned at the top, only 29% of rulings were signed unanimously by the justices, and 21% of rulings split the court along liberal and conservative lines. Analyzing this last term also offers us a glimpse into what this majority conservative court might have in store for the future, especially as we consider the cases that they plan to hear during next fall's term. Amelia, to begin, can you help us put these percentages in context? So the, you know, only 29% signed unanimously, 21% dividing the court sort of strictly ideologically. How out of line is that with what we've seen historically? 
What we're seeing with the unanimity is really out of line with what we've seen historically. It bounces around from year to year, but typically around half of the Supreme Court's rulings are decided unanimously. SCOTUS blog has an average from 20, the, the 2010 to 2018 terms, and they found that 48% of the rulings on average in that period were decided unanimously. It's a little bit higher if you, you know, add in cases where only one justice dissented. And that was even like, like last year, there was, you know, a fair number of unanimous decisions. And that was sort of held out as a sign that the Roberts court was more moderate than it seemed, because look at all the places that the justices were finding um, consensus, which I did not agree with at the time, but we don't have to get into that now. Um, And so I think the fact that only 29% of the rulings were unanimous on its own is really striking. Um, But then the fact that Almost as many, 21% of the rulings were split along party lines, which is to say, you know, we're not talking about the actual political party of the justices. We're talking about the party of the appointing president and that you had Republican appointed justices on one side, Democratic appointed justices on the other side. I mean, that just basically never used to happen because party of the appointing president used to just not be the really driving factor, sort of influential factor in the way that it is today. You know, for a long time, in even in the recent past, there were two Republican appointees, um, Souter and Stevens, who voted with the liberals a lot. Um, but if you look at the data, you start to see the share of cases, rulings that split along these partisan lines increase in the past 10 years, and we hit a high this year. And so I think, you know, that signals it's it's not just that the court is less unanimous, it's also very polarized. And, you know, you also don't need data to see that because these there were some really acrimonious opinions this term. I mean, the liberals clearly very, very, very upset with the conservatives. And the conservatives also took some shots at the liberals in their opinions, um, particularly Justice Samuel Alito. So this is a court with a lot of division. And that's not new for the Supreme Court. You know, there have been moments in, in Supreme Court history. I think there was like the New Deal Supreme Court. There was like one period where the justices wouldn't ride in a car together. So it's not like, you know, the Supreme Court has always been happy and, you know, they send flowers to each other the way Antonin Scalia did with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like, that's not that's not new. But the polarization is new and it's really striking. Is there any other data we can look at to put the last term in context? Yeah, I think there are a couple other things that really stood out to me. One being that there really isn't a swing justice anymore. And this is something we've talked about in the past where, you know, was it going to be a combination of Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett? It kind of looks like it's Kavanaugh if you look at the data. The other thing with the Martin Quinn scores, of course, is like, you know, there's confidence intervals. And so when you actually line up the dots, um, in particular, when you line up, you know, Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch, they're like, right. And even Roberts, they're all within, you know, a little distance of each other. It's really only Alito and Thomas where there's a clear distinction that they're further to the right than the other justices. And the other ones then are all kind of competing for that swing justice um, status, which we talk about in such 
tones, because generally speaking, they can wield a lot of authority on the court. But as we were talking about earlier, we saw the limitations of Robert's authority on the court um, and not wanting to go as far as the court did on overturning Roe. I think something else that was really interesting is the kind of reversal for Alito Thomas normally kind of being in the dissenting camp of the court, and now they're in the majority of opinions. That is a stark difference from where they had been previously. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, and in addition, I thought one of the most kind of intriguing subplots of the the term was um, Neil Gorsuch. Um, and he is definitely conservative. There's kind of no bones about it. And, and, you know, based on the, well, I guess, you know, your point is well taken about the Martin Quinn scores having confidence in for intervals. But I, I think you would generally consider him more conservative than a Kavanaugh, but he has this like independent maverick streak where um, there was a really good graph in, in your article, Amelia. It showed that he was in the majority in divided cases just 65% of the time, which is um, closer to some of the liberal justices than it is to some of the more conservative ones. Um, and, you know, he he's kind of on his own way and, and join the liberals on, like, for instance, Native American law seems to be a big hobby horse of his. I'll let Amelia speak to the particulars of, of the case and, and the legal things. But he's kind of a very interesting figure to me where he is both solidly conservative, but sometimes he'll, he'll zag um, in, in ways that I guess may or may not be predictable. Yeah, what is it besides tribal sovereignty? Is, that, is there something else that Gorsuch is, is not siding with them on? Yeah, he's generally more suspicious of government power than the other conservatives. So he'll also, you know, there have been some immigration cases where he's gone in, you know, what you would, he's gone in the direction you wouldn't expect, basically limiting government power, um, just because that's sort of like a, a overarching theme of his jurisprudence. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'll have a story at some point in the next week or two digging more deeply into what the conservative justice's priorities seem to be, and in particular, what Alito and Thomas might want from the court. You know, they're not going to be necessarily setting the agenda because they're just two votes, but they clearly, as Sarah was saying, have a lot more power now on the court. And it is interesting because I think we do have to think about the conservatives, all of the conservatives, as individuals a lot more. We need to stop talking about the median justice because, as Sarah said, that's like really a meaningless concept right now. There's no swing justice. Um, there's just this conservative majority, and they're made up of different people who have different priorities and think about the law differently. And you know, Thomas is also kind of an idiosyncratic, if extremely conservative justice. So, um, you know, I think though, like I got questions um, in this term about, you know, whether I thought Gorsuch's, you know, sort of independent streak would mean that he could be a swing vote on Roe. And I think you really have to look at it by issue because there was no indication going into that ruling that Gorsuch was wobbly on abortion. Um, like he has his issues and it's not, you know, it's not like I'm not going to like try to build a model and, and predict um, Supreme Court rulings, but he he has his priorities. And so I think that's another area where the Martin Quinn scores, um, which, you know, are great for what they are, but I think it's also important to acknowledge the limitations of, of any data source we have. And they just don't tell us that nuance 
They mm-hmm. don't give us a sense of, you know, these are the issues that Gorsuch cares about. These are the issues that Kavanaugh cares about. This is how Kavanaugh thinks about the Constitution. This is how Alito thinks about the Constitution. And those are the kinds of questions we have to be asking going forward, because that's what's going to determine where the conservative majority goes. Yeah, I want to cast forward the lessons of this term a little bit so that we can try to understand where the court might be headed, particularly in its upcoming term, which, as I mentioned, has lots of hot button issues to resolve. So a recurring reference in the majority opinions delivered this term by the conservatives talked about the country's historical traditions and how it's important to use them in order to determine the confine of the law. How new is that? And what does it look like in practice? How might we apply that to cases going forward? So we are in a moment where we have at least five justices who are not just Republican-appointed conservative justices in terms of how they approach their jurisprudence, but are what you would call originalists. And so four of the justices, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, have proclaimed themselves as originalists. Alito considers himself more of a practical originalist, though you can look at the decision in Dobbs versus um, Jackson Women's Health Organization to get a clear sense that it was a originalist argument made that in the 14th Amendment, there is nothing that stipulates abortion is protected as a right. Similarly, in the Second Amendment case that Thomas authored, it was again about the right to bear arms that reflected the Second Amendment as it was originally intended. And this is something that has been a controversial body of jurisprudence and how it has been approached. Something that I think originalists would dispute that it comes out of the Warren Court, but it comes out of the Warren Court. A backlash to what that was seen as a very expansive um, you know, period in which rights were granted to minorities, to people who didn't previously have a voice. And now it has kind of been this mode of, well, a lot of the legal reasoning in some of those arguments were not particularly sound. There is no basis for it in the Constitution. And so now when you go back with an original lens, it's to look to see is the historical context present in the case that we're arguing? And ultimately, I think what's really tricky about some of that is it's still a political argument. Um, there is multiple ways to interpret the Constitution. I'm not sure that there's a right way, um, but I think what can be frustrating with originalism is it's viewed as it's very like clinical, it's what the Constitution says, and that's just not true. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Sarah. And, you know, the idea that there's one objective view of the Constitution, that there's one objective view of history, you know, you saw all these historians in response to the Dobbs ruling and to the ruling um, that expanded the Second Amendment right to carry handguns, um, this term saying, that's not how we understand the history. You know, I've talked to a lot of historians um, who have studied the the history of the Second Amendment and, you know, debated, but many of them say, no, actually, like when we're talking about the Second Amendment, we really are talking about these specific militia bodies that existed in the colonial period and they had their specific purpose. And it was really not intended to just, you know, give like everyone for everyone to have a gun for self-defense. And so, 
Yeah, I think it is tricky. And it's funny because I think it was Justice Elena Kagan who said at some point fairly recently, you know, we are all originalists now. Um, Because I think there is a sense in which originalism and textualism, which is the sort of the the way of thinking about laws and statutes that goes along with originalism, um, or sometimes goes along with originalism, um, has kind of made its way into a lot of ways of thinking about the law, not just among conservatives. Um, But what I do think we'll be seeing a lot more of with this court is, you know, use of these disputed versions of history to justify a very controversial outcome. And, you know, that's the thing about history is that there are so many different narratives. I mean, I don't think like, it's just, it's just very hard to, to come up with the version of history that is, you know, one that everyone will agree on and also sort of falls neatly into um, one particular outcome. History is messy. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been interesting. I think Alito in particular is interesting because he is sort of, he does have that kind of like pragmatic streak where he's, he's actually made fun of Justice Scalia for being too originalist at certain points. Um, but then he, you know, is perfectly willing to use the tools of originalism at other moments. So... What does this all mean for the upcoming slate of cases that the court is going to look at? I mean, there's a lot, and we're not going to be able to sort of preview and predict all of their outcomes at this point. But maybe let's begin with the independent state legislature doctrine, because I think that relates pretty heavily to what we cover on this podcast, which is redistricting and election administration. What is the question there? And do we have a sense of how the justices feel about it? Yeah, so this is a case coming out of North Carolina. It is a challenge by Republicans to the state's new congressional map, which was imposed by the state Supreme Court. And basically what they are arguing is that the elections clause of the Constitution specifically says that election laws, at least federal election laws, need to be made by state legislatures and only state legislatures. So the specific language of the Constitution is the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Um, Historically, this has been interpreted to mean kind of the entire apparatus of governing. So that would include like the governor's ability to veto things and, you know, other elements of the executive branch, election administrators, and kind of crucially in this case, um, state Supreme Courts. And basically what Republicans are asking their Supreme Court to say is to say to strike down the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision that imposed their own congressional map by saying, you, the state Supreme Court, do not have the power to review federal election laws made by us, the legislature. And this would open a big can of worms for all sorts of election law. You know, it would obviously, you know, it would, it would, it would, undermine, if not eliminate, the role of state courts in kind of adjudicating questions of gerrymandering, which as longtime listeners to the podcast probably know, um, federal courts already are no longer in that business after the 2019 Supreme Court's uh, ruling in uh, Rucho v. Common Cause. And in fact, that ruling specifically said state courts can still do it. And if potentially that would not be true anymore, you know, in in the case of kind of an extreme outcome in this independent state legislature case. Um, In addition, you know, depending on the scope of the ruling, it could take 
governor's veto power away from um, from like election laws. So not only new congressional maps, but also things like voter ID laws or laws expanding or contracting absentee voting, the kind of things that we have you know kind of seen arise as a very hot button issue last year in the wake of the 2020 election, election restrictions, but also expansions. Secretaries of state and election administrators, like they make decisions all the time about you know how to maintain the voter rolls and and how to like open polling places and things like that. And like, would is, is only the legislature allowed to make those decisions? That seems ridiculous. Like the legislature is not going to be literally saying, okay, this school gets a polling place and, and that senior senator gets a polling place. So like, you know, and there are a lot of different ways that the, that the Supreme court could rule in this. It could very well do like kind of a more narrow uh, ruling that would say only apply to, you know, gerrymandering or it would, like constrain Supreme Courts in certain ways, uh, state Supreme Courts in certain ways, but but not completely take them out of the process. Um, but the the kind of range of outcomes are so wide. That's why I think people are so kind of freaked out by by the the, the cascading effects this could have on election law. And in that potential scope, are independent redistricting committees also in there? So you know, of course, California, Arizona. Lots of other states now have independent redistricting commissions, and the Supreme Court upheld them back in the 2010 cycle. Is this sort of potentially relitigating that? Yeah, potentially. That is absolutely on the table. Uh, as you mentioned, Galen, in 2015, the Supreme Court uh, narrowly upheld the constitutionality of Arizona's independent redistricting commission, but the it, it seems fairly clear based on the you know the makeup of the court then versus now that if you kind of reran that decision with the current justices, probably independent redistricting commissions would not have survived. Um, there's also this mitigating factor though that the states with independent redistricting commissions are predominantly democratic controlled states. So think like California. Right. So if they were to eliminate independent redistricting commissions, that would actually be a political boon to Democrats. And if you kind of buy into this logic that the Supreme Court is is doing um, things that favor Republicans electorally, maybe they wouldn't want to do that. Um, but again, it, the, the that is on the table because obviously you could say like, yeah, this the constitution, it says plainly the legislature is in control. And that means you know, in independent redistricting commissions, you're not a legislature, so you can't exist. But there's also ways for them to to rule in ways that that limit the scope or or just vague, um, and you know wouldn't like necessarily toss out 125 congressional districts um, in in a, with a swoop, swoop of a pen. But back to our previous discussion, this is, I think, perhaps best case next term to demonstrate like the originalist argument, because to Nathaniel's point, like, you know, the elections clause says only the legislature mm. can determine how elections are held, even though, you know, a 2019 ruling on partisan gerrymandering did say, state that the state Supreme Courts had jurisdiction to review those maps and, you know, question of checks and balances, which are also in our constitution. But I, I think it'll be an interesting one for the court to kind of go big on potentially. <laughs> messy, messy, messy. Um, so another theme, and again, I said we're not going to get to everything, so I apologize. We will have lots of time to talk about the next term of the Supreme Court in due time. Another theme, of course, is the role that race plays in hiring and education, and again, even in drawing political maps um, as pertains to the Voting Rights Act, and then, of course, as pertains to affirmative action. Do we have a sense from the court how it views these 
questions. We talked recently on this podcast actually about how like in the past, the court has said like, we don't like this practice. We don't want to divide up Americans based on their race in congressional districts. We don't want to take this path of considering race in making important decisions, but we have to because we don't live in an ideal world and we're making up for disadvantages in doing so. Is that still the view of the court? I think probably not. It's dangerous to predict how um, cases will turn out, but I think it's a fairly safe prediction that affirmative action will be extremely weakened, if not completely gutted um, this time next year. And I think also Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act could be much weaker, like to the point where it is non-functional. And I say that because John Roberts has like he he wants to go in that direction. So it's not like this is one where we're saying, you know, oh, you know, do we have Kavanaugh? Do we have Roberts? Do we have Barrett? Like, this is something that has actually already been a priority of the Roberts court. Affirmative action a little bit less so. Um, but, you know, it's just, yeah, I, I think it's something where the justices have actually, you know, maybe Barrett a little bit less um, and, and Kavanaugh a little less, but they've, they've been fairly clear about where they are on this. And what is the jurisprudence there? Like, is this another place where originalism applies and it's just sort of, you know, according to equal protection, we can't make considerations based on race under the Constitution? I don't think we yet really know what the arguments are at the heart of the case. I think it's clear, though, from justices, particularly a justice like Thomas, who has been adamantly against affirmative action, that there is appetite on the court to kind of approach it with the same attitude that they did Roe, which is, are we writing, you know, a previous wrong, which was Alito's words in his opinion. And I think we're going to see that time and again with this court is because they have a conservative majority, they're going to revisit every assumed assumption about a case, um, whether that's affirmative action, whether that's what gun laws look like, whether that is, you know, having to perform services for someone's sexual orientation you disagree with. And I think they will take all of those very seriously. And, you know, if that Dobbs decision is indicative of the future, will go for um, sweeping rulings versus very narrow ones. Yeah, I'll also add that in the Voting Rights case, uh, Voting Rights Act case, um, this concerns basically whether uh, states like Alabama and Louisiana that can support two majority black districts, but currently only have one, whether they're required to add a second uh, majority black district. And in both of those states, kind of mid-level courts ruled that, um, you know, it's possible to draw two majority black seats. And according to existing precedent from the Supreme Court, that means that they should have those two seats. And then the the Supreme Court said, no, we're going to revert back to the legislatively passed map. Which to me says that, you know, it, it, that, that they are clearly reconsidering the standard that they themselves had set because otherwise you would just defer to the lower court and be like, yeah, this is the way things are for now, so let's keep it. And this is like the last bit of the VRA that's still standing, right? <laughs> right. This is, um, you know, the, the requirement basically that, you know, when possible you have to draw a district that gives um, minority voters the chance to elect candidates of their choice. Um, and yeah, and again, there are a lot of ways that this case could go, but it seems unlikely that 
the court will simply uphold the the kind of current standard, which again, basically objectively does require uh, Alabama and Louisiana to draw two majority black districts because that is physically possible. You know, I could draw you a map right now that does that. So it looks like you guys are talking about a Supreme Court that is not just in this past term, but going forward, ready to really reconsider precedent and make some broad decisions that affect a lot of American life. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think they signaled that very clearly in the Dobbs ruling. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think their view is that if the law is wrong, we have an obligation to correct it, even if that's disruptive. You know, and this sort of like adhering to precedent for precedent's own sake is not what the Supreme Court is supposed to do. You know, and and the fact is the the people who hold that view um, do not align with mainstream public opinions. So they do have to reckon with the possibility of a backlash. Um, but I think they made it pretty clear in that ruling that they they feel like they have to set that aside and just do what they think is the right thing. All right. Well, let's wrap up this podcast by talking about, you know, if that's the case, what Democrats could do about it. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Amelia, you talked about how there could be a backlash against the Supreme Court. We've looked at public opinion data that suggests Americans aren't particularly happy with the direction of the court. So for people who disagree with the court, namely Democrats, who I think see this not just as a sort of threat to precedent, but also precedents that they like, but also see this as a threat to their policy agenda going forward. You oftentimes see arguments, well, okay, we could pass this law or that law. Democrats could, but then what would happen to it at the Supreme Court? So for Democrats who feel that way, what are their options? Uh, They can pack the court. Um, They could try to fight the court more directly. I mean, you know, they could pass legislation that's popular and then dare the Supreme Court to strike it down. Or, you know, they could do what Republicans have done over the past 30, 40 years, which is sort of create a legal movement that has a lot of political weight and focus on changing the composition of the Supreme Court, which is just not something you can do quickly unless you're willing to pack it. So yeah, and there are like other things, you know, there's talking about jurisdiction stripping, which is limiting the kinds of cases that the court can hear and term limits for the justices. Um, Term limits thing is one of those things that's popular, but Um, probably not constitutional. Jurisdiction stripping is a little iffier. But, you know, they they don't have a ton of options that will get them results quickly. And I think that's part of the bind that Democrats are in. And also, this isn't a new bind. I mean, we were talking about this during the 2020 presidential cycle. Um, like, clearly, the Supreme Court has is, is a problem for Democrats, and it has been for a while. And I think they haven't really wanted to to deal with it as fully as as they now will need to. I mean, what is the time frame that we're looking at? Like, how long should we expect this current conservative court to maintain its 6-3 composition? That's such a morbid question. (laughs) 
So we've written about this. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, None of us. Our erstwhile colleague, um, Ollie Rader, um, back in 2018, did a, you know, yeah, it was a somewhat morbid exercise, but he looked at kind of actuarial tables and did the math. Um, and of course, at the time, it was, there were five conservative justices in the court, so this doesn't include Barrett. Um, but he found that of the five conservative justices at the time, so that's Thomas, Alito, Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch, Starting in 2026 was when the chance of all five of them being alive fell beneath 50%. Um, So, you know, we, again, this is obviously a completely hypothetical exercise, but, you know, some of them are getting up there. So it's not out of the question that, you know, one of them were to pass away or, or obviously retire, although that would probably happen under a Republican president. You know, and that, of course, would put things back to a, a 5-4 situation, assuming that, um, although I guess all three of the liberals right now are, are quite young. Um, so, yeah. I So I would say it's less the question of when the conservative majority expires on the court and more so thinking about, okay, one reason why the Republicans were so successful in their movement to appoint conservative judges is because I can tell you what their motto was, pro-life. It was one issue, right? It was a one single issue, drove not every Republican voter, but a significant chunk of their base to the polls. What is that for Democrats? You know, and it took from 1973 to 2022 for Roe to be overturned. It was a slow, gradual process. Like the Federal Society, which is often kind of mentioned as, you know, a grooming ground for conservative justices to then be appointed to the court, you know, as this all-potent boogeyman. I don't think it is that. I think the conservatives had a clear mindset for what it was they wanted the court to do. What is it that Democrats want? Okay, so essentially you're saying forget this morbid actuarial stuff. What you really have to focus on is how often are Democrats going to control the presidency and the Senate and therefore be able to appoint justices to begin with. And that the way that they would do that is by having some sort of long-term goal that would help them win Senate seats and win the presidency. Which brings us to our next question. And Supreme Court appointments could be part of that, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, Sarah, are you— were you talking about like the like the liberal legal movement having a goal or Democrats having like political actors having a goal with the party? I mean, I, I think they're almost I wouldn't separate the two because I do think they're somewhat connected in mm. it. Um, you know, I, I would suppose in fairness, it wasn't the Republican Party arguing pro-life as a platform for judicial appointments as much as it was like activists within the Republican Party calling right. for that. But I do think for Democrats, their biggest struggle is it is in a, you know, big tent party with a lot of different issues. So maybe if affirmative action is repealed, is that something that energizes Democrats? You know, mm, abortion- I think affirmative action divides Democrats, doesn't it? Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's that popular. Maybe same-sex marriage might be a better example. You've seen a huge shift in public opinion on that, even among Republicans, where it's like 60% and higher. And I think in the most recent Gallup poll, we're pro-same-sex marriage. You never saw that shift with abortion. As you guys are saying, affirmative action is actually somewhat divisive. Um, What is it that's going to unite a lot of Democrats that they're going to see as an essential freedom that they want protected by the courts? I mean, is it voting rights? Mm, Doesn't seem like it so far, but... Yeah, I was just going to say, like, people are... Like, the Supreme Court has been super conservative for not very long. Um, It took, as Sarah was saying, 
a very long time for us to get from Roe to here. So I think it's pretty premature to be thinking about what kind of politically motivating issue will change the Supreme Court because the Democrats are going to have to try to figure that out. And actually, anti-abortion activists swung and missed the first time. They spent the 10 years after Roe trying to pass a constitutional amendment that failed, and it divided the whole movement and was really problematic for them. And so then they turned around and they were like, okay, we're not going to make this constitutional amendment happen. We're going to try to go through the courts. And then it was another, you know, decade after decade after decade where it kind of seemed like they were going to win and then they didn't win. And so, you know, it's not, this is not something that happens fast. And I think you're totally right, Sarah, that it's an issue for the Democrats that there isn't like a clear uh, issue to rally behind. Um, But I don't think abortion was really that issue in the seventies either. Um, You know, it, it was something that the Republicans almost built a coalition around. And whether the Democrats can do that, you know, whole separate question. But I think, you know, for better or worse, this is going to be a slow process um, for Democrats, unless they suddenly decide they want to pack the court, which they won't. And yeah, I think we kind of don't know what kind of shape it'll take. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that there are two steps to this process, right? And and the first is, you know, maybe Democrats do need to c- kind of come coalesce around a, you know, an, a, a legal agenda for what they want to change with the Supreme Court. And maybe that's overturning the Dobbs decision. Maybe that is, yeah, like the voting rights stuff, assuming that the next term's court cases go the conservative way. But then they also have to gain the power in order to implement that and to appoint those justices. And that is, I think, the difference because there clearly was a path to Republican control in, you know, from the 70s to today. And, and that involved picking up the South, basically. But that that path right now, I guess it maybe it wasn't clear to Republicans in the 70s either, but that path right now is not clear to Democrats. And the the rural bias in the Senate is a huge problem for them going forward. Um, the Electoral College and, and, you know, even questions about whether electoral votes will be counted according to the, you know, the, the popular vote in each state. Like these, these are the questions, you know, maybe in 50 years, coalitions will have changed so much that Democrats will be able to win the Senate again and it'll be fine. And then they'll They'll, you know, be able to overturn Dobbs, you know, on the same calendar that um, that Republican appointees overturned Roe. But the path to Democrats to appoint more justices in in the near term is very narrow, um, just in terms of you know looking at some of the the Senate maps coming up in in future cycles. Like Republicans are in good shape in the Senate for the next decade or so. That was actually going to be my question in all of this is. Obviously, there's a lot of consternation amongst professional Democrats over what to do about the court and therefore the Senate and so on. Are there arguments being made for trying to create a coalition for Democrats that is more likely to win the Senate? I mean, yeah, that's, you know, if they want to win the Senate, they have to do that. Like, that is the argument, but it's easy, a lot easier said than but done. What does that pa- Is someone articulating that path? No. Instead of passing legislation, (laughs) Democrats are focused on the filibuster. I think one thing that got overshadowed with the Dobbs decision was on that day, the Senate actually did pass bipartisan gun legislation following what happened in Uvalde. Now, did that legislation go as far as Democrats wanted? 
Absolutely not. Did it do everything Republicans wanted? No, it was an actual compromise. And I think, again, with like the voting rights legislation, what's really interesting about that is arguably there's a lot of stuff that Democrats want. I understand that. But the Electoral Count Act, there was a bipartisan majority around that in terms of McConnell saying he would support it, Collins saying she would support it. And when you want to talk about threats to democracy, that was one of the bigger ones. And we've seen in the January 6th hearings that, you know, making sure that that process and the ability to send, you know, states their own electors, like, should not be something that should happen. But Democrats haven't picked that up. Um, I think because politically, it's more exciting to talk to just your base and promise X, Y, Z things that align with a bigger, more ambitious agenda. But Democrats don't have the numbers for that in Congress. And the reality is they need someone like Senator Joe Manchin, even if they don't necessarily agree with his politics all the time. Well, there you go. You hear that, Democrats? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's just the problem. It, this is the problem with court packing, too. You know, they could pack the court tomorrow. And if Republicans come in and win the Senate and the presidency you know, in a few years, then they'll pack the court back. And so then Democrats will need to be able to actually win elections to sort of, you know, get things going their way. So, you know, I think it just goes back to like, they have to just keep winning elections. <laughs> and that's, you know, right. As much as that's the. And that's increasingly hard for them in, in right. the, the kind of the way that the institutions. Are well, structured. institutions right. haven't changed how they're structured. The coalitions have changed. Right, the coalition plus the institutional structure, but also the all the the threats to democracy that we see in terms of. I also know, the think though, like it's an uninspiring well. message. Like I understand why people on right. the left who were pro-abortion rights were upset when Biden and the administration's initial response was, "Well, vote for Democrats. Democrats need to win an election." That's where I go back to: No, there are things Congress could be doing, but choose not to because they want to try for a bigger, ambitious agenda that doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of the makeup of the Senate currently. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I think also sort of, you know, one productive avenue maybe could be just like picking fights with the Supreme Court, you know, like get the Supreme Court back into the news, like get people really mad at the Supreme Court. And then you can make the argument like you need to vote for Democrats because look at what these unelected justices are doing. Um, and that, you know, clearly has been motivating for, for a lot of Americans. Yeah, Amelia, on that note, like, there's been so much focus on court packing, but, like, nobody seems to be seriously proposing things like term limits that are more popular. And, like, I'm not sure that term limits would would get past the Senate filibuster either, but, like, I'm surprised that nobody's trying yeah. and, like, yeah, like, like pass term limits and let the Supreme Court strike them down and then right. and then see how people feel about that. Like, Yeah, exactly. Not? Pass popular legislation and just dare the Supreme Court to do what it does with Or at least it. try. Like, I recognize the limits of the filibuster, yeah. but, like, there are right. lots of middle middle steps. Like, same with, like, voting rights. Like, they could have passed, like, a standalone thing on, on gerrymandering. I've talked about that on the podcast before. And, like, you, they haven't even kind of tried to do that, which I'd be curious to see if they would work. Maybe, probably not, but maybe. So it sounds like you guys are saying that Democrats, when it comes to both legislation and their views of the court, have ideas that are too lofty to sort of, like, function in our political system. I don't think it's unique to Democrats in fairness. So, I mean, I think the counter argument to this right is that Republicans, when they had a majority in the Senate, still couldn't repeal Obamacare, right? Like governing is challenging. There are always going to be elements in whatever party it is that do not do what you want, right? I think 
Republicans have built a brand identity that is based in not governing. That's not Democrats. Democrats are the party of government and the party of passing legislation. And I think that's part of their hiccup now is they're trying to make, a, I think, a very Republican-based argument of we're pushing X, Y, Z. They won't cooperate. They're obfuscating this. And I don't know if that's actually resonating with the big umbrella that forms the Democratic base. You know, yes, there are progressives within that party, but there's also a lot of like moderates who just want kind of, you know, basic freedoms when it comes to voting to be protected and not necessarily a huge ambitious laundry list involved with that. And I mean, I think the Dobbs decision also shows us, you know, it it took the Supreme Court overturning what I think is like one of the only two precedents that Americans can probably name um, for Americans to really tune into how conservative the Supreme Court is. And so, you know, what the Democrats can do politically is try to put more heat on the Supreme Court. I mean, that's really kind of what the political scientists who have studied this have said the mechanism is. It's politicians making it hard for the Supreme Court to be out of step with public opinion. And so maybe the way that they do that now is not, you know, like not by making threats about court packing that the conservative justices know they're not going to follow through on, but by creating other kinds of confrontations with the Supreme Court um, and really shining a spotlight. Because I think one of the reasons that we've gotten to the point where we are is that it's just a lot of people have just ignored how conservative the Supreme Court was, um, you know, uh, before Amy Coney Barrett came on. Anthony Kennedy, the swing justice, was also quite conservative. Um, so, you know, I think it, that is an avenue that I don't know if Democrats are thinking about it, um, but it does seem like there's sort of, there's a little bit of an assumption of like, oh, the Supreme Court will strike this down, so we can't do it. And I just go back to like, okay, well, then pass it and let them strike it down. And then people, you know, if it's popular, that might make people mad and that might benefit you politically. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Let's leave things there for now. Thank you, Amelia, Sarah, and Nathaniel. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director and Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening and we will see you soon.